This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Are you a Survivor fan? Then you have to check out Rob Has a Podcast, hosted by Survivor competitor Rob Cesarnino. Every week he'll be recapping the upcoming season of Survivor so you don't miss any of the action. Plus, Rob is celebrating his 10th year podcasting so you know that he is a total pro. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and many of your favorite podcast listening apps. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin, talented freelance writer. A lot of his work is at 538 now, but he is producing good material all over. And also, he has a really interesting Patreon that you can check out. But we talked about a lot of different concepts about about the trade deadline, title contention, and everything in between. And so it's a wide-ranging conversation. You know, we get down some tangents, potential playoff series, everything else, but I think you'll really enjoy it. Episode is brought to you by BetOnline. Go to betonline.ag and use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. And I also want to let you know that we are now on Spotify. So uh, if those I've been asked about that at various moments in time. So if you prefer to use Spotify and you've been toughing it out, not using it for this podcast, you can, you can check it out over there. Really do appreciate that. This show runs about an hour 10. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. This is always, now that the league changed the trade deadline, a really interesting time to kind of take stock of where things are because we know what these teams, broadly speaking, are going to look like. You know, there could be some bio candidates here and there. I mean, it's possible Marvin Williams and MKG are two of the bigger names that get moved in, in that circumstance. And obviously the trade deadline has already passed. So I'll start with opening the floor to you of just your big takeaway of February so far. I'm actually working on something right now. Like I think we're kind of underrating how much the Bucks might be better than everybody else. Um, like you look at it right now, they're 46 and eight. The next closest team is the Lakers, who I think are four and a half games back. That's an enormous amount at the All Star break. And you look at it in net rating, the Bucks are four point three points ahead of the next closest team, which is the Lakers. That's the same as the difference between the Lakers and the eleventh place team. And going all the way back to nineteen ninety seven, that is the largest difference in net rating between the first and second place team. It's the Bucks to the Lakers and the ninety seven Bulls to the ninety seven Pistons, both four point three points in net rating difference. I think we might be underrating how big, how good the Bucks are, especially when you look at what they've done these last couple games, even without Giannis. Um, you know, obviously they they won the other night, and then they had the a pretty big comeback against Indiana. Ultimately, fall short last night, or perhaps two nights ago. Whenever people are listening to this, um, that team is just really, really good, and they don't do anything poorly, and they didn't even need to make any big moves at the deadline. And then they went and got like essentially the perfect buyout guy for them in Marvin Williams. It's it's scary how good that team is right now. It is. And to use comparisons for last year, so last year 
the using cleaning the glasses garbage filter, the Bucks had a nine point one point differential. And this year that's eleven eight. And worth remembering that last year's number two team was the Golden State Warriors. They don't exist anymore. Last year's number three team was the Jazz at plus six point seven. Using clean the glasses filter, the Celtics actually jumped the Lakers, but they're both close. They're about plus seven. And it, yeah, it is it is such a strange circumstance because there is this combination of, of feelings, which is the Bucks were also the best regular season team last year, and they didn't not only didn't win the championship, they didn't even make the NBA Finals, but the, both the team that beat them and the team that was the number two in the NBA, which are two different squads, both don't exist in that form anymore. So I think the underrated possibility here is that the Bucks are similarly good to how good they were last year, but that the other competitors aren't as dangerous. So the idea that even even if they're worse, like let's say on a talent level, I think they're going to miss Brogdon and all that type of stuff. Then, then last year in the playoffs, it might just be that it's an easier field for them to get through. It might be an easier field. I think you know people are like, oh, they have to prove it in the playoffs, and like they did prove it in the playoffs. They took the champs to the brink in the Eastern Conference Finals. Like it's not like they weren't good enough to win the title last year. There were some matchup issues that they couldn't deal with in that particular or not necessarily couldn't deal with, but didn't deal with appropriately in that particular series. And then, you know, there are I think the the concern for me this year with them is the thing that was not talked about as as much of a concern last year, but was to me sort of the reason that they weren't able to win that series is Mike Budenholzer's willingness to extend his guys to, you know, 38, 40, 42 minutes, like a lot of other coaches will do in the playoffs. Like he came out and straight up said, like, I don't think the solution is playing Giannis more minutes. And that was after the series where the, the, the Raptors kind of took control um, in what was it? Game four, game five. I don't remember what it was. Um, but he, you know, he said that, and I would imagine that he probably still believes it. And that to me is the thing that's more likely to hold them back than like, you know, Giannis is not an elite three point shooter or something like that. Like to me, it's more about the decision-making and the way they will actually use their roster in the playoffs. And then like, this is something that's been a criticism of Bud for a while now. Like, is he willing to, you know, have another club in his bag or willing to, you know, quote unquote, play left handed and at least adjust things slightly from the way they play in the regular season? That's something they've not really done over the years either. And I mean, maybe it's irrelevant this year just because of how good this team is and how much better they look than pretty much everybody else right now. But, you know, if it's me, I'm more concerned about those two things than I am about, you know, they don't have Brogdon anymore or about Giannis doesn't shoot threes or even Giannis can't seem to make free throws anymore. The free throws are a concern. I'm wondering if if some teams will go to hack a Giannis. And one of the other considerations there is that Milwaukee, this is kind of a counterintuitive thing that I've been working on. Nate and I have done so many of their games for the live show that I've been, you know, you get to think about a team more. And what I realized is Milwaukee is so good at getting back in transition defense that one of the concessions that a team makes when they go to Hacka is that you're always facing a set D. Milwaukee, you're basically facing a set D most of the time anyway. So that consequence isn't as severe. So I think that could be a consideration, and you know their offense is even their their half court offense has been has been very good. I believe it's actually was the best in the league last time I checked. I don't know if that's shifted in the last couple of days. And another element of this that I think is really working in the Bucks' favor is the tentative framework of the bracket. So it's it's obviously still too early. 
some people, you know, th- it's worth remembering that the All Star break is far, far away from half the halfway point in the NBA. Right now, mm-hmm. the Bucks have played fifty four games, so not you know they they have twenty eight left, so fifty four twenty eight. So we're basically two thirds of the way through the season, and the way that it looks to me like it's shaking out is that, as, and this isn't a surprise, that as regular season teams, the Raptors and Celtics have been better. I, I didn't expect either of those teams to be as good as they have been. But now that we kind of have this baseline for who, how good those teams are, they're, they play good defense. They're, they, they, I mean, Toronto's battled through injuries. And so going through that. But so what that means, if I'm right, and the Raptors and Celtics are the, the two and the three in either order, then that means the Sixers are on the same side of the bracket. And that also means that the Sixers play, presumably play the Heat in the first round. And it does make it more likely that the Bucks play the Sixers, and I'm still a believer that the Sixers will make life hard on Milwaukee. But it also means that they'll only play one of the Sixers in Miami, and it means that it will be in the second round, which I actually think might be better for them than if like you're facing potentially a, a, a Sixers team that is more congealed, better fitting together in the in the conference finals. I think that makes sense. I also think if they happen to play Miami, I remember last year when you know Miami was throwing the zone at everybody and everybody was kind of discombobulated by it. The books like absolutely tore it apart. Um, and, and that seems like something intellectually Budenholzer would be very good at handling. Yeah, I mean, I asked him about it when they were here in New York. I was like, you know, what are you guys doing differently against that zone? And he basically was just like, we're not playing against it because we're just pushing the ball up the court as quickly as possible um, so we can, you know, take shots before they get set in it. And obviously that's what everybody says they want to do when a team is going into a zone. But because they have Giannis and he can actually get down the floor faster than literally anybody in any situation and even if there are guys back he can just sort of go past them or around them or through them anyway it's a little bit different for the bucks than it is for a team like say you know the like the rockets who when i wrote my zone defense story last year were really struggling against zone defenses at the time or or even like the sixers where it's like simmons can do that but most of the rest of the guys are you know not joining him on that break because they're a little bit slower that's why teams are playing more zone against them than i believe against any team in the league um, but even when the Bucks were in the half court against that zone, they were really tearing it apart like quite a lot. And one of the things they were doing was screening the side of the zone, having Bledsoe take the ball to the wing, and then giving him another screen right away back into the middle. And that worked really, really well for them. And I'm interested to see if they do wind up playing the Heat, and the Heat do wind up using a lot of their zone, how Miami adjusts to that. Because it's not the most complicated thing in the world, you know, guarding one screen and then guarding another screen back in the opposite direction. But it is something that gave them a lot of problems last year when those two teams played. Another benefit for the Bucks in terms of the bracket is that the bottom two teams in the East are not exactly inspiring. And I, it looks to me like De- Brooklyn is going to stay ahead of Orlando. And I would say Brooklyn, because their star players are more likely to play, you know, like th- that Kyrie being back makes the Nets better than the Magic. And John Isaac, an important part of the Magic, doesn't look like he's coming back. This year, we don't know that officially yet, though they did apply for that disabled player exception. And Right. If he if they applied for it, doesn't that mean essentially he can't 
come no, back. No, that that mean if it's granted, then that means it, it. That means the doctors expected it. It doesn't mean that they he cannot. Basically, you can defy the doctors. But also remember, Orlando basically did use it, so it's not like they got any. But I don't even right. know if it was granted. I haven't heard anything definitively on that. But basically, what that means is it is. But in this case, it probably does because I believe the standard is more likely than not that they won't be available to play until the end of the playoffs. And so if a guy, if they expect that it's more likely than not that a player won't be there for the playoffs, then we're talking here late April. We're not talking June, Joel. We're not talking late June. So that would be pretty significant. So I, I think that's a fair assumption. But yeah, I haven't heard if it was granted. That's something I should, I should look into. Um, but either way, I mean, I think the Bucks. You know, it could be one of those maybe like more of a rock fight four or five game series, but I don't think they would have too much trouble with the Magic. The Magic's offense would just flatline against them, and Orlando doesn't have the shooting to even have hot games that would really give the Bucks trouble. There's that stat about how a lot of the Bucks, like the Bucks, only have eight losses, but a series of them have been to teams with the high water mark of their three pointers for the season, and that makes mm-hmm. sense because that's the shot that Milwaukee concedes, and so and it's high variance. So if it goes in a lot, then that makes the Bucks more vulnerable. And, yeah, I think they're really well-situated. Also important for them that the Lakers didn't make any additions at the deadline. And, I mean, the two highest-profile, the two buyout guys that we know already, not that they would have were perfect fits for the Lakers, but it looks like those guys are going elsewhere, Marvin Williams to the Bucks and MKG to the Dallas Mavericks. So And they didn't get Andre Iguodala because he went to Miami. They didn't get Andre Iguodala because he went to Miami. So it's going to be harder for the Lakers. And Derek Carlson is, is staying retired. So they're not getting mm-hmm. him either. That means it's and going to be And the Clippers beat them for Marcus Morris. Sure. So it's going to be harder for the Lakers. The Clippers beating Marcus Morris I, might be a challenge because the Clippers could, could win the West as well. So they don't get as, as much of a benefit there. And we'll see. Maybe Iguodala being in Miami actually affects things because Miami could face Milwaukee in a – in a second or a conference finals round series, depending on how things shake out. So I, I think that the Bucks are looking good in the East, and then the West is just, I think that I'm still sorting out those teams. I watched a lot of the Lakers on Wednesday night because we, we did them for the live show. And I'm very conflicted on the Lakers because when they're humming, their defense looks great, their offense, you know, like the, even last night against the Nuggets, there were times where they were struggling, but then they had some high pick and roll with Davis. Davis has some threes in overtime. But I'm LeBron doesn't look to me to be the same scorer that he was. His passing is still ungodly and, and all that. And he's playing much, much better defense, which is good. And it's important for the Lakers' success this year. It's a big part of why they've been the best team in the West in the regular season. But thinking about how they scale doesn't exactly fill me with confidence the way that it has some other LeBron teams that were going into the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, for me with the Lakers, my issue is, and look, I mean, if you have LeBron and Davis, like you are a title contender, and especially when you have a shooter who, when he's on his game, like Danny Green, is, you know, another guy that you can count on all the time. And obviously he's played in probably more important, certainly more important games than Davis and more important games than just about anybody else in the league, save for LeBron, right? Like between the Spurs and then last year with the Raptors. I mean, he's he's been in so many big games. It's not like you have to worry about Danny Green, except for like when he's trying to take a floater and the occasional like, what are you doing, Danny type of pass. But the issue for me is like the Lakers have been playing big all year and it's it's worked really well for them. When you get in the playoffs, do you trust JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard to split 36 minutes a game? Um, I'm not sure how you can game out whether or not you should until you actually see them in that setting. I do think it's a little bit of a concern. 
and why I would like to see them get you know on the buyout market a sort of like a combo big man type that can guard centers so Davids doesn't have to, but can also you know not just be a pure lob threat because I don't think Kuzma necessarily fills the type of big guy they're looking for next to him. Um, and then the point guards like. Avery Bradley's not really a point guard. Yeah, they, they don't. And, they don't really have anybody I, I'm comfortable with handling the ball other than LeBron. Yeah, so it's like there's two spots there that I don't know what they're going to do. You know, the, essentially the two spots next to LeBron, AD, and Danny. Um, you know, maybe it's KCP, maybe it's Avery Bradley, maybe it's both of those guys, maybe it's Kuzma, maybe it's Dwight, maybe it's Javale. But right now, I don't know who it is, and that would be a slight concern to me because. Having options is good. Knowing who your guys are is better. Having good options is better too, because then you you could do, and so and that's one of the differences between them and let's say like the Clippers. Like I just I like the Clippers possible lineups combinations better. Like they they have fewer holes and yeah, LeBron's going to play a ton of minutes, so that those concerns aren't as real. But we saw it last year with Joel Embiid that a team can lose a lot of ground when their star is off the court and it can be hard to reconcile that. And if they try to have Davis on the floor during those minutes and that's less time for LeBron and AD to play together and you get into all those problems. And the other big concern that I have for the Lakers in terms of championship window, this isn't about winning the, like getting the best record in the West or anything like that is that when you think about them facing the teams that I think are their two clearest opponents i've said for me the title the top contending tier has been three teams basically since the beginning of the year it's been the lakers the clippers and the bucks the bucks have the single best rim protection defense in the league right now maybe in the history of the nba and the lakers do a lot of their damage there and so they're they the bucks do over help sometimes they freak out maybe they'll give up shots but remember, I talked about just the basic idea that the Lakers don't have other guys who can handle the ball. So if the Bucks can use their length and close out, then those guys have to make dribbles and decisions and pass and all that, and it creates big problems. And then against the Clippers, Clippers have – I think their defense is going to step up. They have players who can do that. They have a history of it in other – mostly in other cities, but that's okay. But also – both of those teams are reliant on these big, small forward, power forward types that are very hard to defend. And unless it's going to be LeBron, who isn't best in that role and hasn't been for years now, they don't have options. Like, that was the biggest reason why I, I was supporting Marcus Morris going to the Lakers or Iguodala, should, you know, should he have been bought out and everything like that, is they don't have other people. So whether it's LeBron is shouldering so much of the offensive burden or that you lose him as a help defender or anything like that. They have capable defenders at other positions, but they don't really have anybody for that responsibility. And that is that I think is the the part that might be the story of this Lakers, you know, like that as much as they did a much better job building this year than they did last year where it was just such a disaster and then LeBron's injury exacerbated it and everything else is LeBron's window is narrow. I mean, the guy is already 35, and even though he's remarkable, there's still going to be some degradation. I think we've already seen some. And his window is narrow. So basically, Kyle Kuzma, they made a bet that Kyle Kuzma could be a part of this, and I don't feel comfortable with that. I'm kind of in the same boat with Kuzma. So there are, I think, three things that you said that I want to get thoughts in on. The first one is the specific potential issues for the Lakers against the Bucks in terms of the rim protection. That's something that I hadn't thought about and is a really good point and it made me really angry that I didn't think of it myself. Then the specific issues against the Bucks and the Clippers in terms of having big wings to guard them. 
Um, I think they're going to try to get by with like smaller guys against that guy or even Kuzma against that guy. But, you know, Danny Green can guard some threes, but he can guard like Paul George type threes that get by on, you know, smoothness and being able to blow by guys and things like that. I know they've been teammates there for Kawhi's whole career, so we haven't seen him try to guard Kawhi really yet. That is not going to go well if you try to put Danny on Kawhi. Um, he just doesn't have the strength to deal with him, and then certainly he doesn't have the strength or the size really to deal with Giannis. You know, you, you put him on Chris Middleton, I think you'll be okay, but against Giannis, it's going to be a problem. So I do, I do agree with you that they have that specific issue defensively. I think that their thing is they're going to try to overwhelm you with their size on the other end. And that's where the question about, you know, Dwight and JaVale comes into me. Like, can you really count on those guys um, when you need to? The the second thing that I wanted to mention was with the options that the, the Lakers and Clippers have in terms of the guys who are going to play next to their stars. The thing that, that leads me to think the Clippers options are better is that depending on who they throw out there, even the other three guys surrounding uh, Kawhi and PG, they can go so many different directions and throw you so many different looks. With the Lakers, really the only different look they can present is are we going to go big with Dwight or JaVale or quote-unquote small with Kuzma? Um, you know, The other two guys, whether it's you know Danny or KCP or maybe both of them and then Bradley or Rondo or Caruso, like – Nothing's really changing about the way the Lakers are playing because LeBron's going to be handling the ball anyway. You'll have either one shooter or two shooters out there with them. And the only thing that changes is whether you're big with one of the centers or small with Kuzma. The Clippers can show you so many different options depending on whether they're using Beverly or Lou Williams or Landry Shamit or Marcus Morris or Montrose Harrell or Zubach. Like any combination of those guys changes things significantly. They're a little bit more able to shape shift than the Lakers are. And I think that that's especially important because you need to be able to play different ways against different teams. Yeah, I I think that's a huge point. And also, I trust Doc Rivers to choose the right matchup for the right time more than most coaches. I think that he knows what his guys are. And that's, I mean, to me, that's one of the lingering effects of that series they had against the Warriors last year was they had some really good counters. And sure, the Warriors team they were facing wasn't exactly the same one that was dominating the league due to injuries and everything else. But they did a nice job of punching over their weight. And I always remember that when a coach does that. I also thought even, again, with the injuries, Nick Nurse did a good job of that last year. And I, I think that even with different personnel that, that could happen again this year, Stevens has done it too. So if that was a potential second-round series, would be really, really exciting. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that the Clippers, and adding Marcus Morris helps there. Just another guy to throw out some of their assignments. And he does bring downsides. I mean, Morris has offensively he can shoot but there's a difference between being a capable shooter a willing shooter and the other things you can take off he is not a low usage guy most of the time so that could be a big problem but just having another big body who can slow down lebron maybe slow down at a little bit really does have some value for them yeah i mean you we were literally just talking about the relative lack of guys the lakers have to throw at big wings i mean the clippers have Kawhi, pg marcus morris like you could even try like Jermichael Green, like, I don't know if throwing Harrell on Giannis would be a good idea, but you could try it if you want to. They could try it like, with Zubach. I, I, I honestly don't think it would be the worst idea. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you look at um, the Heat now have something similar. Like, they could try uh, Crowder. They could try Solomon Hill. They could try Bam. They could try Jimmy. They could try um, Iguodala. Iguodala. Like, 
they have a lot of guys to throw at that type of player too. And that that is the one thing I think that stands out with the Lakers that they don't have. Another team that doesn't have that is the 76ers. Like they basically they're they're five They have to use Simmons basically in that yeah. role. They have to, and then that, that takes a lot out of him. And Simmons is a, a wonderful defender and an underappreciated one, but I don't love him in that part of it. You know, that to me, that's not my favorite thing that Ben Simmons does. Defensively, he can be disruptive, but as a one-on-one, you know, lock-and-trail type of defender, I, I just don't see that as the best thing he does. Sort of like Tatum. I mean, I mean the best Tatum, thing Tatum, Simmons Tatum does defensively, right, the best thing Simmons does defensively is that he can guard everybody. Right. But in a spe- in the context of a specific matchup, that's not quite as valuable when you need, like, we need to guard Kawhi, then being able to guard Kawhi and PG and Patrick Beverly and Landry Shamit and Marcus Harrell doesn't have quite as much value because you're just looking for someone to guard one guy. And he can do it, but that's not like the benefit of Simmons is is more versatility than I'm going to shut down this one specific matchup. And it might end up being one of those long tail type of things. And I've harped on it since it happened that even though Elton Brand identified Tobias Harris as being that guy in the starting five who could compliment Embiid and Simmons and whoever else it was going to be, the rest of it turned over so much over the course of the year. And I'm more skeptical of that than Brand was, but we'll, we'll make that decision what it is. The part that changes it was the resources that they sacrificed in order to get Tobias Harris. Because you could think about it that, especially considering it looks now like the Clippers were not going to offer, even if they hadn't gotten what they did, that they weren't going to offer Tobias Harris a full max, that they could have potentially gotten Harris. And let's even ignore the difference between the higher raises and all that type of stuff and the fifth year. They could have gotten him without having to give up Shamit and those picks. And those assets— And then look how desperate they've been for shooting that they just had to put Korkmaz in the starting lineup and that they you know, had to obviously not uh, a ton of value to give up three second-round picks for Glenn Robinson and Alec Burks. But like, if you had Shamit, you don't have to do all that maneuvering. Right, or you could do all that maneuvering and you get better. You know, you get you get more options. And the, remember, they also gave up firsts in the Tobias Harris trade as well. And first, that ended up becoming a part of the. I believe I'd have to run the number. They became a part of the Paul George trade. So, like the benefits that the Clippers got from the Sixers overpaying helped create their powerhouse as well. And also just having Shemek, who I think is a good player, and and one of that optionality pieces that we talked about for the Clippers before. So yeah, I, I think that. The Sixers, the challenge that that they're going to face, and this is Brett Brown's challenge right now, but it's Elton Brand's challenge moving forward. Is they don't have really any other looks. That you know, I, I I'm happy they got Gr3. I'm happy they got Alec Burks, and maybe there are moments in time where one or both of those players can be a part of a starting or closing lineup. But generally speaking, this team is going to rise and fall with the five that that Brand put together. And there will be times that that works beautifully. I still believe in their defensive ceiling, especially when if Josh Richardson, and I think he will, comes back 100%. But that is such a gigantic gamble because they just don't have other options. Yeah, I think Richardson, we haven't really seen you know full strength most of the season. Obviously, he's missed a decent amount of time with injuries. Like He might be able to change things if he's full strength and you know the guy that we saw him be last year i do think that that provides them a little bit of a different look than they've had for a bunch of this year just because he hasn't really been himself for a lot of the season even when he was healthy quote unquote he was dealing with you know issues here and there so i I do think that's a little bit different for them if by the time the playoffs roll around he's like full strength and the guy he was for most of last season 
Still plenty more to talk about with Jared Dubin, but first a message from Bet Online. The drive to March has begun for college basketball's finest, and the NBA's contenders are looking to make a move leading into the All-Star break. Even though football is done, this is a great time to get involved at Bet Online. If you want to do the All-Star game, you absolutely can. Team LeBron versus Team Giannis, and then games will start again in about a week, and that'll be an exciting time to get back into it with the trade deadline acquisitions. But also you have college basketball, Maryland and Michigan State, UVA and North Carolina, some really exciting games going on all over the slate. And for those of you who are passionate about college basketball, of course, local games going on all the time, which is really exciting. And go to betonline.ag and use the podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus, whether it's a game that you're going to be watching anyway and you want to make it more interesting, or if you think you know something that the odds makers do not, either way, you can go to Bet Online and check it out. Also, they have a ton of other action going on depending on what you're interested in, including MMA, and to find something that interests you. It's a great thing to check out. And make sure that if you do, go to betonline.ag and use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. Tells them that you came from us as well, which is great. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. We've brought them up a couple times, but I want to spend a little bit more time talking about Miami. And I'm not as sold as some are on their absolute, absolute ceiling this year because the offense concerns me. They just, they, to me, they don't have enough players that can generate that either as comp- as lead guys or as complementary players. You know, I don't think Hero's all the way there yet. Dragic has his moments, but I don't think he can be an engine. Kendrick Nunn, I'm not all the way there. When you're playing the best, the best. Those guys, I mean, that's part of the reason the Heat have been a wonderful regular season team and they will continue to be. But what they did at the deadline was stunning, not as much to me because of, of who they added, but how little they sacrificed to, to get better and to get cheaper in the long term. All I had left in my life as a basketball fan was hating Pat Riley <laughs> and... I have nothing anymore. Like he goes and takes his terrible contracts and turns them into Igadala and like almost Gallinari. And he really doesn't have to give up from their perspective much of anything because they've been playing so well this season, even without Justice Winslow. It was like he clearly was like kind of superfluous to them. And that's all they had to give up to to get, you know, the upgrade that they wanted. Like he just he makes me so angry. Like Oh God, it's so annoying. Um, I I do think I agree with you that I'm not necessarily quite sold on their you know top level ceiling. I think if if they would have gotten Gallo, I would have been all in. I would have been like, this is the the team that's going to challenge the Bucks in the East. I don't know that I necessarily would have thought that they were actually going to beat them, but I would have been like, this is like the clear cut second team if they had gotten Gallo. Um now I think they're, you know, sort of in the mix with with Boston, Toronto, Philly, maybe even Indiana if they can figure out how to get Oladipo worked into what they had been doing earlier in the season. You know, I, I think that they're kind of a step behind the other team those other teams right now, even though Philly hadn't been playing that well until what was it, two nights ago when they had the the great win, or was it last night? I don't I don't remember. Um but, you know, Miami, I think sort of interestingly kind of reminds me of what I had just said about Simmons, where the best thing about Miami is all the different things that they can do, and that's good, but in the context of one series, it's not quite as valuable, and if you have to play a certain way to beat a certain team, I don't know that they have the top-level way of playing in each of those ways, you know what I mean? It's sort of like a discount version of the Clippers, where they can play a lot of different ways, but the ceiling on each of those ways is not quite as high as it is with the Clippers because the Clippers have Kawhi and Paul George and the Heat have 
Jimmy and Bam, and Jimmy and Bam are both really good, but they're not as good as Kawhi and PG. I broadly agree with you, and also the just on the concept of comparing them to the Clippers, something I've become more obsessed with over the years, and Kawhi is a big part of this, and LeBron is too, is undeniability. So it's, even if you can't do many things, can you do something so well that even if the other team games for it, they can't, they can't stop it? And Kawhi's mid-range, you know, Kawhi so ball, all that type of stuff, that qualifies. But Miami doesn't really do anything on either end of the floor that I think fits. And the versatility for them, I, I, I'm trying to piece together in my head how a Miami-Philly series would shake out because both of those teams have so much more defensive upside than offensive upside. And one concern that I have from Miami's perspective there is that, yeah, they can do some of these con- zone concepts. I trust Spo as a playoff coach significantly more than Brett Brown. But Joel Embiid, to me has the potential to be not only the best player on the floor, but he the way he can attack a defense is a lot harder unless Miami does some really cool scheme stuff trying to get the ball out of his hands and that, uh, deny entry passes, that sort of thing. I could see a circumstance where Embiid wins the Sixers one or two games and that their defense and the rest of them is stifling enough that they do it, but that would be a really fascinating series. Miami, you would assume, basically plays zone like more than any team has played zone in any playoff series in that case, in, like, in that so. particular series, right? Yeah, like, I mean, that, that that, that's the leader in the clubhouse as of now for me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm trying to look this up right now um, based on uh, the games that they've played so far. I know that Miami played a significant amount of zone against them earlier in the year. Yeah, so they played zone um, on 41% of possessions in one game, 40% of possessions in another game, and 25% of possessions in the third game against them. That is the first second and third most any team has played zone against or first second and fourth most any team has played zone against Philly all season Dallas played 35% uh in one of those games um and let's see there have only been so yeah among the those are in the top 5 uh most zone games or sorry top 7 most zone games all season so and, it would be And you know what else is all crazy? Zone. <laughs> they don't play each other at all between now and the end of the season. They're done. Yeah, they only play three times. Yeah, and so they're as as far as when I checked when I checked the schedule, I I think all of those games are done. And so then that means we're going to get even less data to work with and I think that series is looking pretty likely, you know, 30 games out, we don't know exactly where things are going to go. And it's possible that one of the teams could try to, to try to move their way out, and I think the way to do that would be below. But that requires the Pacers winning some games. They had this; they've been dealing with this losing streak, and the passage of time will help just because Oladipo is going to get healthier, and they can do some better things to figure out how to use him. But yeah, I mean, the East is is going to be is going to be fascinating, and also something to keep an eye on for the top end is even if Boston and Toronto are very motivated to be in the two threes, they avoid Milwaukee as long as possible. They're probably going to fight pretty hard to, you know, rest the rest versus pushing is going to be a big challenge for for Stevens and Nurse when you consider the huge difference between the the, the seven seed and the six seed this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, those two teams are going to have to play each other in the second round. The and the home get court there, there. Like, that's another great point. Yeah. But let's jump to the West. Um, I mean, there are a couple different. We've, we've already, of course, talked about the Lakers and Clippers a fair amount here. And the Rockets are the are the other gigantic discussion from the trade deadline that we haven't discussed. And I'm so happy they made this bet at some point. I don't know if this was necessarily the year that I would have liked it most just because I don't think this is their best year of contention, but I'm pretty excited about it. 
it's it's super fascinating and like look i i get people being angry about teams going to one extreme or another but like i don't see how people can complain everybody plays the same way and then get angry about the rockets playing so much differently than everybody else like those two complaints seem kind of incongruous to me um i i think it's really fascinating and i think it's probably something that mike d'antoni has been wanting to do for a while um i believe it was simmons that brought this up or maybe it was zach that brought this up where d'antoni has been talking about like his one regret from the phoenix years was that they didn't go all in enough uh can't say that about the rockets they have gone completely all in on what they've been pushing the edges of these last few years and something that i'm interested to see is how much this changes their shot distribution just uh you know the the mori ball rate that they've got going i wrote something early last season on you know the erosion of their math advantage because essentially everybody in the league started playing like them and it seemed like they had hit a ceiling in terms of the percentage of their shots they could take from you know inside the restricted area or inside the paint and outside the three-point line um in like the low um maybe they vaulted up into or vaulted up into the high 80s and that provides them a little bit more of an advantage than even they had had you know in the the first year or the second year of the d'antoni uh harden era when they you know had the one of the two of the three or four best offenses of all time you know if they get get up into the high 80s maybe they get back into that range that's a really good thought and i I think that's a part of the rationale and the other part of it was Houston now has much better personnel to defend the way they wanted to defend in the first place. And mm-hmm. I don't know that it's going to work against everybody. I, I think they're, you know, especially the Clippers. Like, I could see it being a big problem because switching everything works works well against teams that attack certain ways, but then against other ones, they'll the Clippers could just get Kawhi against whoever they want and he'll just brutalize that player and... The Clippers have the defensive chops to to kind of handle what the Rockets are going to throw. Then they, I think they have, they don't have the perfect roster to defend James Harden, but I think they have a lot of guys that can can take time on it, and that's that will be interesting to watch. Also, it wouldn't shock me at all if the Clippers do a good job on Russ, just because of the the personnel that they have, the amount of looks that they can throw, and they have a lot of smart veteran defenders, including guys that have faced Russ in playoff series at various different places, and. I yeah I th- I think that the Rockets they're definitely more interesting this year. I this was a question Nate and I got in our Patreon mailbag that came out on Wednesday was did this make the Rockets did this improve their title odds and my answer was absolutely even with the idea even with the the possibility which I don't think is necessarily true that they didn't improve on a talent level the idea that when you are not the best team the biggest way other than improving a lot to strengthen your title odds is by increasing your variance. Because increasing your variance means that you can win a series or win, win two series, and it, there's a chance that it all falls apart, but there was always a chance that it all falls apart, and you actually decrease that by increasing your variance. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, I think in a certain sense it comes down to like if you're not the best of the best, get weird. You know, like don't teams should not be afraid to get weird in the micro sense you know like the raptors are doing this year where they're changing their defense all the time or in sorry i said micro sense right not macro um get weird in the micro sense like the raptors or get weird in the macro sense like the rockets you know like i think that that's a perfectly viable strategy to raise the ceiling of a team that may not be the most talented um I, i do think one of the interesting things that motivated 
the the Capella trade, even just apart from having to change your team up a little bit. Um, and this is something that Kevin O'Connor brought up. And like Kevin, so sorry about your dad, man. Like he told us all yesterday that you know his his father passed away a couple days ago. It's really terrible. And you know he had sort of been sharing that journey that he'd gone on with his dad's cancer diagnosis over the last couple of years. He's been sharing that on Twitter. You know, prayers go out to the O'Connor family. I think it's him and his mom. Yeah, um, that it's just it's terrible. And this was like at the deadline, Kevin made the point that the Rockets had gone from the most screen and roll heavy team in the league to the least. And that's what Capella's best at. And if you're not going to have him doing the thing he's best at, he sort of becomes superfluous and you can just get somebody that fits better. And now he's in Atlanta and they are the most screen and roll heavy team in the league. So that'll probably work really well for him there. And that ties in with another one of the big storylines that happened at the deadline, which was teams that had a lot of cap space betting against it. And in one case with the Drummond trade, teams making opposite bets. And for Atlanta, they the, the biggest part of it for them was functionally they traded the probably the 16th pick in the 2020 draft for Clint Capella. And so there, I mean, they were looking at more cap space than anybody would have known what to do with in a weak free agent class. And they decided that having Capella on that contract was more valuable to them than that first than, than that first round pick. And I think there's a rationale there. I think he was the best player available, definitely the best combination of player and contract for them specifically. You brought up the screen and roll stuff. Also, the Hawks needed a player who could potentially help give them a defensive identity. And while Capella is not perfect, he he can help them there. And also an evaluation lens for John Collins, who I don't think should be as set locked in a part of their future. So from the Hawks perspective, they, you know, and, and Capella, the difference between them and what Memphis did, and we'll talk about that in a minute, is that the Hawks didn't close the door. They just closed it on the ridiculous, like, $70 million in cap space by getting Capella and then by getting Dwayne Dedman, where there they didn't add as much money, but it also didn't, you know, there they, they were able to get a player who fit in well with what they did last year. Yeah, that was the point I was going to make. Like, Atlanta, yes, they took on a bunch of money for next year, but they've still got, I think, like close to 45 or 50 million in cap space potentially. So they could still do essentially what Memphis did last summer, you know, take on contracts that teams don't want and get picks out of it or get players out of it. Like, if they can get their version of DeAnthony Melton, that would be great, you know? Um, Atlanta can still do that. Um, Memphis. You know, as you mentioned, and I think you and Nate talked about this on the podcast, and then Nate talked about it with Hollinger on um, their podcast, where they vaporized just about all of their cap space, I believe, for the offseason. And that obviously forecloses the opportunity of them doing the same thing they did last summer with great success. To me, I think it's a little bit more justifiable from their perspective because the free agent market is not good and obviously you don't have to use your cap space on free agents but i do think for closing yourself to paying below average free agents above average money or star level money is justifiable um so the free agent market is not good they're not drawing good free agents there anyway um they got a player who is essentially a perfect fit 
for the rest of their core and is still very young. And they got him on a very affordable contract for next year and a team option the year after. And then because the free agent market is so much better in 21 than it is in 20, those contracts that they took on that expire next year are so much more valuable than expiring contracts were this year. You know, like, plus they now have a bunch of mid-sized contracts that can be used to either aggregate them together or to find somebody, you know, that's a better long-term fit for them. Like now they have Gorgie Jang at 17 and a half, Tyus Jones at 8.9, uh, Kyle Anderson at 9.5. Um, I think Josh Jackson is up after this year. So it's those three guys, plus even Winslow, if they decide that he's not the right fit for them. They have so many of those contracts that could be used either in isolation or together to find either another star or another guy that fits better to what they want to do. And I think because they have not just the top star like the Hawks do and Trey and the Grizzlies do and John Morant, they also have the second star or second like close to star in Jaron Jackson and other really high level contributors in Brandon Clark and Dylan Brooks and even Valanchunas and DeAnthony Melton and other guys that can contribute at a high level for them. I mean, they even have Jonas's contract if they decide that, you know, Jaron Jackson's ready to play center. I don't know that he necessarily is, and, and Jonas does a lot of good things for them. But well, they, they also have so have many Jang, more options. Theoretically, as a backup five, if they want to move Jaron to the starting five, like they could do right. something like and, that. Play play Winslow at the four and move Jaron there, and so you don't have to get a, yeah. a replacement starter. Also, replacement starting five is very easy. Yeah, they have I think so many more options to deal with than the Hawks did. So I do think it's a little bit more justifiable for them. I like to think about this in terms of opportunity cost, and it is a very – and I've, I'm working on a piece for The Athletic that talks about this. And and the, the challenge for me is squaring my own expectations because generally for me, vaporizing $40 million in space, you go, okay, well, what is it worth it? Really what they, they got for that $40 million space is they got Justice Winslow. As you said, reasonable contract for a couple of years. Also notable that if he makes it all the way to the end, even if they decline the team option, the the Grizzlies will have full bird rights on him. So that you know, it doesn't guarantee that he's come back. They won't have match rights or anything like that. But you know, it is it is an advantage if things go well. And they also were able to get Dylan Brooks at what I feel is a below market price, three years, forty five million. And one mm-hmm. of the stranger things about that, I just found this out from Eric Pincus when he put in the contract, is that they they did a a, uh, a it goes up then down it goes up then down and so that means the the richest year of it is 2021 which doesn't make much sense to me i thought that would be the year that they'd be that they'd be trying to strike in for agency maybe there's something that zach Kleiman in their front office knows about their planning that i don't it seems weird to me and generally when a team does something like that i'm like huh okay you keep it in your mind because they deliberately made that structure and so wonder what that was keep keeping the back of minds so getting dylan brooks below market getting justice winslow assuming the health stuff is clean enough and i mean the players are playing for their new team so presumably it was clean enough for the grizzlies at least and I think, you know, I'm a little bit torn because the challenge with the, all of the major levers that you think of for for an offseason are weak this year. So free agents, not a strong class, especially not in terms of young guys who would fit in their timeline. You know, the, the best players in the free agent class are not going to be available to the Grizzlies because they're going to be matched. You know, Brandon, it's not like they're going to use their cap space to get Brandon Ingram because Brandon Ingram's not going anywhere. You know, that sort mm-hmm. of a thing isn't there. And... I also, because the free agent class is so weak, there isn't as much leverage to exert over the teams that there aren't going to be as many teams. That was the next point I was going to make. Trying to get who's giving up a first to get cap space to sign like 
I don't know. Is is someone giving up a first to get the cap space to sign Fred Van Vliet away from the Raptors? Probably Maybe. not. Maybe, but probably, probably not. not. And, and does Fred Van Vliet want to go somewhere else? You know, like, d- does that even right. matter? And, and the you know, Ingram is one of the most exciting guys in the market. You know, if, if AD gets on the market, then maybe that changes things, but I don't expect him to, you know, gets on the market, meaning he actually considers leaving the Lakers. Not that he's technically a free agent, because he will be. I, I already broke that down. But it, it's a real consideration for the Grizzlies that there is, the opportunity cost is a lot lower. Oh, this Bodie, year. stop it. Sorry, my dog just stepped on. That's all right. <sighs> it's a part of the fun of, 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 of recording the way that we do. But yeah, but so, so the cost the cost to Memphis is lower. I don't know. To me, Justice Winslow is not worth it, even if the uh, opportunity cost is lower. But the theory behind it is is sound. I mean, Winslow, that he can handle the ball a little bit. I think they want somebody who can who can do that. I, I lamented the idea that they, you know, that w- with what Memphis is going to look for in that other perimeter guy, you know, now that they have Brooks and John Morant kind of locked in. And maybe it's just Winslow at the three, maybe it's him at the four and they add somebody else. But the other huge part of this for the Grizzlies is that maybe the bet is that they do this in 2021. And at that point, the problem is that there's going to be a lot of other contenders. But maybe they're trying to make the same case that we've all been penciling in for Dallas, which is, <coughs> okay, you're not. this isn't a major market. This isn't the you know the lake a glamour franchise in terms of the, the the Knicks or the Lakers or whatever, but we're a really good young team that has this space to burn. You can have a playing a role depending on what player they're pursuing, and that might work for somebody. Maybe this is maybe they're not going after Giannis. Maybe they're going after that year's Paul Millsap and. I haven't identified yet who those players could be. It's such a wide open year that it, it could go. But I get that for Memphis. And and also their team is so young that maybe they want a little bit more time to figure out what they actually have. But it is a pretty significant thing. And then the other part of why – this is the part that makes me queasy about it. I was getting at this before is while a lot of the levers are going in the direction of this not being as valuable – the part that is too hard for me to write off now is that you never know what could present itself. And that could be a team needs a facilitator for a trade. So it's not that they're signing high-profile free agent X. It's that they're trying to make a trade for, I don't know, Carl Anthony Towns, Giannis, whoever, whoever that player is. And there aren't that many facilitators around right now. And maybe mm-hmm. they could exert some value there. It's not going to be as much as like, Obviously, the Thunder got for Paul George or the AD trade or anything like that, but it can be value. And really, functionally, that's the role that the Grizzlies actually played in the uh, – if you think about the Warriors' whole situation as an ecosystem, they were more of a facilitator than anything else. And there can be value there, even if we don't see it at the beginning, and even if some teams going into last offseason didn't see it and just took themselves out of that race. Yeah, that makes sense. I do think it's a valid criticism. I also think that at a certain point – like. We're criticizing so many. Maybe they could have done this, and maybe they could have done that. Is right, and, and I, I think that's those- I think that's totally fair. And it, it it's also hard because it's my instinct, and the a lot of the factors here are going in favor of this not being a, a tough thing for Memphis. Another loser in that sense of the trade deadline is that Memphis. If they're, it looks like they're going to be competitive this year. Yeah, they did trade Jay Crowder, and I mean, Iguodala wasn't playing for them. But the pick they're sending to Boston, not only mm-hmm. is it in the looking like it's going to be the 2020 draft, but it's going to be a worse pick than we anticipated. And Boston benefited a lot from that 
from that dynamic in the Kyrie Irving trade. It was the mystery box, oh, hey, what's that pick going to be? It ended up becoming Colin Sexton. And now I think they're being hurt by that of the, oh, the Memphis pick, that's going to be the next great way that Boston gets better. And now it's, you know, it could potentially, if Memphis makes the playoffs, let's say the Lillard injury is worse than we expected, Memphis continues to play well, that could end up being, you know, like the 16th pick in a draft that people don't like. Instead yeah, I mean, of being same ex- the same thing happened to them last year with the Kings pick. Absolutely. Um, That's another great and example. I, and I think that, you know, even though they lost Jay Crowder, I think Memphis might have actually helped their chances to make the playoffs this season with this trade by cutting Solomon Hill out of the rotation, giving more minutes to Kyle Anderson, who just because of his passing makes for such a an easy fit with their other guys out there. Um, and because he's so low usage and he's such a good passer and he, he's just such a different player than so many of the other guys they have on their roster. I think he makes a lot of sense starting for them. I think we've seen that over these last couple games. And then when Winslow comes back, he's such a connector piece that allows you to play in so many different ways. You can play him at the four, you can play him at the three, you can use him as a small ball center. You could use him as your backup point guard. If you don't like what Tyus Jones is giving you on a certain night, like he, he just gives you so many different looks and just from one player to be able to provide that many things, you know, once he ever gets healthy, if he, if, and when he does that, I think is a, a, a benefit for them too. And then just what you were talking about with the potential of going after somebody in free agency, I think obviously Dallas has the advantage of having Luca, um, the Grizzlies have the advantage of their second and third stars not being on big contracts yet, like Porzingis is. Um, their best guys are going to be on still their rookie deals. You know, John, Jaron Jackson combined are going to make far less money than Luca and um, and Porzingis. However, there's a counter, which is that Dallas has the benefit of an owner who is willing to pay. Like we 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 know that if Dallas has the opportunity to get somebody good and then have to pay Luca on top of that, that Mark Cuban is going mm-hmm. to do it. We don't know that with Robert Parra right now. That's definitely true. But just in terms of having the cap space available to pay the star, sure. I do think the Grizzlies have a little bit of an advantage just in terms of their star guys are going to make less. And it's better to have to trade – uh, supporting guy to create a little bit more space than it is to have to trade a starting guy. Also, the Grizzlies will have flexibility that summer. There are going to be so many teams with cap space that if they need to clear a little bit of extra, there are a lot of different ways that they can do it. They can trade Kyle Anderson. They could stretch Kyle Anderson. Same thing with Tyus Jones. Both those guys are going to make about nine, ten million that year. Valanciunas will be making 14. That's not a terrible contract. We don't know exactly where the cap is going from here. But yeah, so the, they don't have... They that don't have might a, not even be starting center money by then. It, it depending. I mean, maybe starting center money is actually going to go down, but we, we don't know that with, with the overall dynamics in the league. But yeah, I think that's going to be a time to strike. And it's possible another kind of pin to keep in there is there's an outside chance that Memphis could actually push back to 22. The challenge there would be Jaron Jackson's cap hold goes up. But if Jackson ends up being one of those players who is good, but in, but isn't quite max player good, you could either agree to an extension and then lower his number immediately or... They could have an understanding that hey, if we get a star, then we're gonna then and you can and you get a lower cap number, then we'll lower it and move move it that way because Jaw still is so far away from his own boost that that could end, end up really working for them. And then John Brandon Clark will be restricted in the same year, and that's twenty three. So they might have another chance at this. We'll have to take a look. And I you know I still don't love this move for them, but the the possibility of it working out is there. And then the other weird group of teams for me. And some of these have, have resolved with buyouts, a couple of them, 
is that there were there were a bunch of teams that had these narrow pathways to ins- to use contracts to get guys that are, that are already under contract that are, to get guys use expirings to get guys that are on multi year contracts and. To an extent, that's the, what actually what the Cavs did with the Dante Exum Jordan Clarkson trade was Dante Exum signed for another year. We'll see whether that works out, but that was kind of the theory behind it. And in some ways, Cleveland did that with Andre Drummond as well. But the Mavs had that with Courtney Lee. The Pelicans had that with Der- with Darius Miller, who inspired me to write an entire piece about the concept of the walking trade exception. And a couple other teams had these expiring contracts that they just basically let wither on the vine. OKC did this with with uh, Andre Robertson, and that was a little bit weird to me because in some ways that was found money because there are always teams that are looking to shed multi-year contracts, even if it wasn't as pressing for some of them. I mean, it's possible just that the guys that they wanted to get were not available in that type of trade. You know, Not everybody's going to be willing to trade those multi-year guys, especially if you're looking to take on a multi-year guy that's like actually good. Right, like San Antonio, Um, for example. San Antonio might not have wanted to trade Rudy Gay, who is a player that I had brought up for this idea. Yeah, I mean it's it's entirely possible. Like, let's say the Thunder wanted to get Rudy Gay, who would have been, I think, a pretty decent fit for them as you know another one of those guys, like you know backup Gallo as another three four type off the bench. Maybe San Antonio didn't want Andre Robertson and second round picks. You know, like they're they're still trying to make the playoffs too. You know, maybe a doomed attempt, but obviously that streak is important to them. They don't make midseason trades really anyway. You know, it, it's possible those those types of deals just weren't available. The teams that I think are more worthy of criticism for not trading their expiring guys are the the Charlottes and the Knicks's where like you really couldn't have gotten a second round pick even for Marvin Williams or you could have couldn't have gotten a second round pick for Wayne Ellington like those are teams that have so many holes on their roster and have players that have seemingly actual value like Marvin Williams got snatched up in what eight and a half seconds on the buyout market obviously his number is big so maybe nobody would have wanted traded you know something for him in uh well, also think about yeah. like think about Dallas for this. So Dallas, yes, they got MKG, and I think that's going to work out well for them. But they could have gotten Marvin Williams for Courtney Lee and had both guys. That would have been awesome. Yeah, I mean they yeah. had they had the filler salary, and maybe they like Courtney Lee better. I mean it was weird that he got marginalized for basically the entire season before the last like week. But maybe they're going that direction. And yeah, I mean you can think about somebody like New Orleans or any like any a lot of these teams that had wiggle room, and it, it does go both ways. And it, it often hard. There's something Dan Feldman and I talked about last week to criticize teams for deals they don't make because we we don't know how to calibrate it but it does seem like especially with with Marvin and with Marvin Williams that something could have been there and I mean you could say the same for you brought up the Knicks I mean they have all these players that are on very lightly guaranteed deals for next year many of which will probably they'll just now they'll just cut the guy and either stretch that money or more more likely just take the hit some of them like maybe Reggie Bullock they'll keep around but it is a, it is a really they got a lot of value from Marcus Morris and and good good on the Knicks for actually trading him, which was a hundred percent the right decision. But mm-hmm. just not creating any value for everybody else. Like I think there's a chance you would know better than I am that they might just keep Alfred Payton too. They might um, certainly. He's been their best point guard, I think, this year, just in terms of what they actually need from a, a point guard, which is to create literally one easy shot for anybody because um, they don't have many other guys that can do that. Um, I'm not 100% sure they'll keep him, especially because it looks like obviously the front office leadership is going to be changing. And if Scott Perry is not there, there's not anybody with you know ties to Alfred Payton that wanted to bring him in and like is his quote unquote guy. You know, I don't I don't know what Leon Rose feels about 
Alfred Payton. I don't know what World Wide West, if he's joining in an official or unofficial capacity, thinks about Alfred Payton. Obviously, Scott Perry is much higher on the, on him than just about anybody else. So that obviously affects things in the future. Um, you know, I, I think it was probably a little bit harder for them to trade someone like Taj Gibson or Bobby Portis just because the size of their salary makes it probable that you have to include somebody that's like actually worth something or is just such bad money in a deal and that complicates things. But Wayne Ellington is only making what, like five or six million dollars a year. Like the and, Lakers couldn't have Bullock, used him for Bullock, Rondo and nothing. Yeah. Yeah, Bullock, Bullock same thing. Gotten like, for Demarcus Cousins, like, granted, the Lakers are not an asset-rich team, but somebody could have done something. Demarcus Cousins and one second-round pick is better for the Knicks than you know having Bullock, who they're not doing anything with. You know, I, I think that that them and Charlotte are the teams you can criticize more so than you know playoff teams where you you may have just not been able to get the kind of guys that you wanted for those salaries that don't make sense on your roster and that'll just die on the vine last thing i want to talk about with you we're about two months from the playoffs and one of the big things of course we'll both be watching is the new faces in new places i think that kind of goes without saying that we'll keep an eye on that but i like asking people so you get you get a week off of of thinking about this but after that what teams what players are you going to be most interested in watching i think it's sort of the teams in the like the second tier of each conference like who is the team that's going to separate itself as being able to challenge the Bucks? Who is the team that's going to separate itself as being able to challenge, you know, the Lakers and the Clippers and possibly, you know, the Nuggets or the Jazz? Like, who are the teams that are going to step up and be in the conference finals against those best teams? That's kind of what I'm looking for, you know, at the top end. Um, the back end, like, who decides that they do want the best lottery odds even in a year that everybody seems to hate the draft. I mean, everybody likes to say having the best lottery odds doesn't matter. We literally got a concrete example last year of it mattering. Like the Knicks fell to three instead of to six or seven. Like even though they wound up missing on, you know, a a top two that looks like it's much better than the rest. You certainly would have rather been at three than six or seven. Um, That has value. Is there a team that says, screw it. We're going to go all the way to the bottom, whether it's, the Warriors, I mean, who apparently are going to bring Steph back, so maybe it's not going to be them. You know, is it the Cavs? Is it the Hawks? Can the Knicks get themselves into that mix? Is it the Wolves? Um, I think that that's interesting, too, just because everybody thinks it doesn't have value. It clearly does, and we got a concrete example of that last year. I will echo all of those, especially that second tier in the West. I just need to figure out who's good and who isn't from that group. That'll be, that'll be a big question. The Rockets are high on that list for a bunch of different reasons. But then the other collection, and this is true in the West and not the East, is the, I call them the next teams. And so that is this group of young ones, and Dallas is better than Memphis and New Orleans. I would say they're probably the next ones, where we're not as much looking at how good are they right now. It's looking a year, two, three out and saying, okay, this is the early stages of where this is going. So for Memphis, Mm -hmm. Ja, Jaron, Dylan Brooks, hopefully Justice Winslow, how does that look and it's not about necessarily regular season wins and everything else, but then the the giant one for me is the New Orleans Pelicans and Zion. I mean, Zion has been so fascinating, and in many ways, he is the player that I thought he would be, and the question was, would it work? And it 
I would say mostly it has. There's still, I mean, he's not going to shoot 40% from three forever, and hopefully he'll shoot better than 59% from the free throw line at some point. But he is physically dominant in a very different way that I think is really exciting. And now David Griffin, you know, uh, we all wish that it happened from day one instead of day 50, but he gets some time now to evaluate how this team is going to work. And New Orleans has the complete capacity to overhaul overhaul because one of the key ways and this is something I, I harp on a lot of of when people say tear down team x is well what does that actually look like and mm-hmm. one of a, a key problem there and this is something that charlotte dealt with is if you want to tear down and the players that you have on big money contracts are negative value it is incredibly hard to actually do anything and so that was part of why i was believing in the hornets over and everything else like that we'll see how that turns out But New Orleans, as far as I can tell, every single player that they have on a multi-year contract is a value contract. So Mm. Drew Holiday, about $26 million a year after this year. JJ Riddick, one year, 13 after this year. Lonzo, one for 11, isn't going to make everyone thrilled, but I think on the right situation, and that situation might be New Orleans, he's a really good fit, and then Melly and, and all their other cheap guys, of course, they're cheap. And... I don't know yet if David Griffin has an expectation of where where this all goes. And, and okay, what is Zion's best defensive position? What is his offensive position? What, does Derek Favors make sense? But, A, you get to watch a lot of Zion, and just like Jaws, that, that's exhilarating. But also, they, I, as somebody who loves thinking about this from a general manager's perspective, figuring out where where he wants to go with this is and where I would go like I, that's something I, like people some they say that something like oh if you got control of this team what would you do and if somebody asked me what would I do if I were the Pelicans my answer would be let me tell you in two months yeah I, it might even be let me tell you in a year and a half sure you know like very well could be Zion playing a full season after having you know the entire off season to get himself like I think the concerns about him being fat or out of shape or whatever are overblown like even like clearly not in the best shape of his life he's the most athletic player on the floor and most times it's not particularly close so like what difference does it make but to get himself in even better shape than he is now um and and come back and play a full season like that's a potentially much different player than even the guy that we see on the court right now maybe he can play center maybe he can switch on to anybody you know like we don't know what they're gonna be and we don't know what the rest of the guys are going to look like around him. And he's already this good, this fast, despite like not even really being himself yet. You well, can take your time. The there's there's I mean, no need. The, the, like, the rust, the physical and mental rust that comes with this, jumping into an NBA season midstream, but much, much more doing it as a rookie is incredible. And I think they need to take a lesson from the Anthony Davis era where they were like, we have to – start winning right now and we're going to trade multiple first round picks for Omer Ashik and um Alexis Ajinsa and like don't do that this time you know take your time there's no need to try to skip steps you're going to level up at some point because you have that guy and he's that good to the point where it's going to be almost impossible for you to not be really good at some point anyway. And the the same was probably true of Anthony Davis. If you didn't completely deprive yourself of all assets to improve the team around him, you don't need to do that this time around. Take your time, figure out what he is, figure out who fits with him and who doesn't. And because the other guys around him, even if they're not perfect fits, like you mentioned, they're all on pretty decently valuable contracts. You can you can turn them into something else and something good and something valuable somewhere down the line if you decide that they're not perfect fits, and then you just just in terms of what you said in terms of the teams that are uh, 
you know, quote unquote next, you know, certainly more of them reside in the West than in the East. Like the, the teams at the bottom of the East right now, I mean, maybe the only one that looks the potential to level up at any time soon looks like Atlanta, just because they at least look like they have a, a foundational star or close to it. And Trey young, the rest of the teams at the bottom of the East really don't. And that just reminds me like, I've said this a bunch of times. I will never, ever, ever get over the Knicks not getting the number one or two pick this year. I'll never get over it. It's like the new where Steph went one pick ahead of them. Yeah, it's going to be hard hard to get over there. And especially if this ends up being a non-star heavy group, it might take even longer for that paradigm to shift. And that that's like one of the huge differences for me between the East and West right now is – how hard is it to make a case for the non-playoff teams to be playoff teams in the, in the near future? And Washington gets that because they, they'll get John Wall back and they, they can, I think they're better run now, so maybe they can add a little bit more depth and their their age, age the passage of time could help them. But Better run than they were under Ernie Grunfeld? I know. No way. It's a huge, it's a huge bar. I don't know if they can handle it. But, I mean, a lot of these teams, the Cavs, to me, are, are, are an amazing example of this, which makes the Drummond trade so fascinating, of it's going to take a while. Like, they're not they're not good enough now, and to build up the base, Pat, you know, maybe Sexton and, and Garland are better in a couple of years, but they need, they're so terrible defensively, and wings forwards are so hard to find. It's going to take them a while, it's going to take the Knicks a while. The Hawks might be closer, because Trey, Trey can be a, a linchpin in some of those things, but like also the Pistons, they're a long way away. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hornets probably are. <laughs> Although I'm in the Christian Wood hive. Like, oh, absolutely. That dude is good. I, like, I, think, so. I think so, too. And Honestly, Chris, though, Christian that Wood, trade might hurt them because he's going to be more expensive. And Wood, it's so appropriate that he's an unrestricted free agent this year because yes. th- it, like he is such a gigantic wild card and is also an example of why I didn't love the Hawks giving up so much cap space and tying up the centers is while I think Capella is a better fit for Wood for them than Wood will be on his next contract, there's a possibility that he just gets underpaid by the market and somebody could just swoop in and get him at a at a at a price. And like that's something Memphis theoretically could have done if they had had a little bit of space. And I wonder who that team is. And I know that I want it to be the Hornets just because they need that infusion and it would be really fun to see them get that upside. They're they're one of those teams with it. And, and and that doesn't have an answer at center. So we'll see. But it, it could be – I wonder how his free agency is going to go. Yeah, I mean, I look, a lot of the young guys um, are restricted this offseason. And it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to pry them away. When you have a guy – like, I, I think he's just a legit good player. And when you have a guy that's good and an unrestricted free agent, and I think he's, what, like 23 or 24? Like – that's not something that comes on the market all that often. Christian Wood is 24. He will play next season at 25. That is really yeah. young for the amount of stuff he's gone through in the league. Yes. What is he? He's been on like five different teams or something, right? He has played in games for five different teams. Yeah. That's and a that lot. doesn't even include um, his. his I, I remember Bodner's tweets about when he was going back and forth to Delaware and all that type of stuff and then into Greensboro. The oh, yeah. Year. I remember all of, you know, process Twitter tweeting about like we got to bring up christian wood all the time back in the early days of the process well i think we've covered more than enough ground so thank you so much for taking the time always a pleasure thanks for having me man i appreciate it 
Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his work all over the internet, and you can also follow him on Twitter at jadubin5, that's J-A-D-U-B-I-N, and then the number five. Love talking with him, and this is a great time of year to talk with Jared because, like me, he's a cap nerd and a basketball analyst savvy in his, in his own right, and that combination can be really useful this time of year to get a sense of where things are and where they're going. And, I mean, Jared and I met years ago. I, I don't know if it was HP, Hardwood Proxism, or we worked together at Mid-Level Exceptional. I actually took over running that site from him, so I worked under him and then replaced him, and then... That was a great experience for me, hopefully for both of us. And now we're getting into the All-Star break. There are going to be no games that count towards the score sheet, though, of course, if you want to watch All-Star and Dunk Contest and all that fun stuff, you absolutely can. I'm going to actually really take some time off this year. That's something that I've enjoyed doing the last couple. And uh, we're going to recharge. Probably will have some writing at The Athletic. I have a piece that's just in the submission phase right now. So that, that'll probably come up. And, you know, if I have some time, I'll probably do some writing. Real GM Radio, as always, will come out every week. So there will be a new episode next week. Don't know the timing yet, but I already do have a guest lined up as long as we can figure figure everything out. But that's why it's a great reason to subscribe and download every episode that is so important with a show like this that doesn't come out on a specific day of the week. Also, word of mouth, very important, whether that's telling your friends or telling people on social media, whatever it is, really do appreciate it. And leaving a rating, leaving a review, that is important so that other people can find the show. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. I understand if it's not. And if you want to be awesome, you can leave a review both places. But the most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for this episode that is Bet Online. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. And you can also now check out the podcast on Spotify, which is pretty exciting. It's people have asked about that before and it is it is done now. I talked about that a little bit last week, so you can check it out there if, if that is your preferred podcast player and they are certainly becoming more aggressive in the business as a provider as well which is exciting for all of us in in this world just to have have more people who are invested in it is always a good thing you can also check out dunked on nate and i are on a form of hiatus as well but we did a lot of great trade deadline analysis and then we did a 15 and 60 on all of the teams that didn't make moves at the deadline we will do a companion one to that after the after the break and and get into everything else and we will actually do our first position ranking we did recorded the shooting guards and we will release that next week i don't know what date nate wants to release it but it is it is already recorded also nate and i did a patreon mailbag that you can check out as well so lots of stuff for you to consume while you while we are on break um and thank you so much for listening and if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I try to respond when I can, but that's not my promise. My promise is to read it. And uh, really do appreciate that. Get stuff all the time on various things, suggested guests, or, hey, talk about this, or whatever else. And it can, it can go into other things. Sometimes it ends up being peace suggestions or anything else. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. 